Hello there, welcome to episode 71 of Right Where You're Sitting Now. Back from the dead, indeed, back from the dead. We uh, we had a an interesting few weeks, um, technical issues, uh, we had a guest blow us out, which is fine, it happens, um, and we also uh, had COVID in one of our households, so um, not that, not, you know, none of us, neither of us were infected, thankfully, but... Um, you know significant others were let's put it that way and it's a uh, rain stop play as it were um so yeah but we are back on our regularly scheduled programming now um and uh joining me in the uh the hot seat in the uh co-pilot's chair if you will is one mr mark with a c satir okay Oh yeah, and I like the fact that each time salutations. There you go. There we go. Uh, I've reduced it to one word now. I know exactly. Salutations. It'll just be a grunt within a few episodes. <laughs> <laughs> no, and beyond that, it'd be like a just like a nod, no. which won't even register. Yeah, exactly. I won't well. even register. That yeah. would be like a kind of, you know, it'd be so etherealized by that point. It would be just like a, a concept. Exactly, and I'll, I'll have to like sort of interpret for the listener what's going on in front of me. It'll be like a yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Well, it'll be. I mean, uh, you know, there is a, like a veil between me and and Ken, and I, yeah. I, 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 as you can know, like Pythagoras, you see, I, I stand behind the veil, and 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 my disciples interpret my 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 movements, shall we say? Yeah, it's uh, every, and utterances. Every episode to sort of beforehand so i can sort of summon mark i have to get a, a seer stone out and, uh, right, yeah. and sort of scry it's and see if it's not that too far from the truth <laughs> um but anyway what are we talking about this episode mr satir all the world's a stage ken and the men and women on it merely players and uh explore drama cinema music the arts uh, as they are filtered through uh, through the sort of occult occult aspects of life, and uh, that, uh, and we're going to focus today. We're going to um, on uh, the book occult occult culture, uh, uh, two words in one. Uh, the unseen forces that drive cultural fo- culture forward, and it's by our esteemed guest, uh, Mr. Abrahamson, Carl Abrahamson. And his wit and wisdom, we friend we friend are, of the show, returning uh, guest. His wit and wisdom that we we are we are, we are privileged. Uh, I, I, and I am I do regard myself as a very privileged person in the position it's sitting now. I do get to go to the Fountainhead and um, and 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 learn and, and hopefully if if on the way, if on the you know fellow fellow travellers there in the uh, the misty the misty starry ether the interwebs they they join us in that journey then our work is our work is done we're just these are just a suggestive signposts on the way they're not definitive they're not the final word they're just invitations invitations to reflect yeah exactly we're all fellow travelers when it comes down to it um so yes joining us again this week mr carl abrahamson one of my favorite guests um and uh yeah really looking forward to talking to him about his book of culture the unseen forces that drive culture forward um it's not a, a new book um, it came out, you know, a year, a few years ago, now. But it seemed one that was relevant, and it gave us an excuse to to reinvite Mr. Abrahamson back onto the show. And uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm foreseeing that he will be a, a fairly regular guest, um, you know, 
um, in the, in future episodes as well, which is good, which is good. And yeah, and and the anthologizes uh, um, talks um, lectures is is given on other occasions, so they're not lost. They're not lost to uh, you know to those people who weren't there. They can be enjoyed again and benefited from again, and um, you know you can benefit from reading the book. And if it inspires you, if you're promoting, you know, if you listen to this, or I mean, it goes both ways, isn't it? You might listen to this and think oh yeah that you know that something sparked an interest there or vice versa um you know either way it's uh you know it's a very much a, a case of and rather than all always in, in all these cases yeah exactly anyway i'm looking forward to this that's uh that's rolled over and uh rolled over <laughs> let's jump over to our interview with cole abramson Hello, Carl Abrahamson. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's uh, always a pleasure and and, uh, the more the merrier. Excellent. Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, Certainly one of our favorite guests we've had on. Um, Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I I can really second that. It's it's been this is a bit like the uh, the sequel. It's like, uh, yeah. uh, you know, Carl yeah. Abrahams and the, the revenge. <laughs> yeah. This right. time it's personal. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're talking about uh, your book, A Culture, today, which was released a while ago, but it's, you know, yeah. it's still a, um, uh, you know, a really interesting book. Um, it's just, mm-hmm. For our uh, uh, listeners, it's A Culture, The Unseen Forces That Drive Culture Forward. Um, so what kind of made you want to put together a book like this? Uh, well, I think it was an increase in in uh, interest in uh, what I was doing and what I was doing, um, let's say, in the early 2010s was an increasing amount of lectures, meaning writing pieces that I could present as lectures. And and we had um, EDA, Publ- EDA Publishing going, the company together with uh, Fredrik Söderberg, and that was about the time when we visited um, the Pleasure Dome conference that the Scarlets put on in uh, Brighton in 2012, I think that was. And and uh, all of these things, the Scarlets had, had um, uh, approached me about anthologizing, um, well, ex- essays of this nature. And that became the book Resonances that came out in 2014. And by then I was, I already had a great sort of momentum because I, I love doing this kind of stuff, writing essays and, and uh, doing lectures. And so it just, I, I wouldn't say that I was on, on automatic, but I did work uh, quite hard with it and found it very rewarding. And then of course, what happens is that the material accumulates and then suddenly you find yourself with say 20 or 23 essays, uh, uh, and um, uh, this was also, uh, let's see, the, the the very instigating moment for a culture specifically was when I um, uh, was at a conference in New York um, in early 2016. So Resonances had been out for a while and it created kind of a buzz, which was very pleasant. And... Um, at this conference, which was called uh, the Occult Humanities, it was at uh, New York University, uh, and there were uh, many people there, you know, listening and talking, and there were also some some vendors and and uh, in the traditions were there, and I'd known um, their um, 
uh, one of their editors for for some time, and we talked about it, and and uh, he suggested that we should you know talk more about uh, anthologizing whatever is available at that time, and that's basically what we did, and and uh, also at that time. Um, Someone said uh, something that really stuck with me that uh, I'm becoming like the Umberto Eco of the underground. And and I love that because I love Umberto Eco. And it's something with this kind of approach, um, which is not necessarily humoristic, but it's a kind of a pop attitude to dealing with heavy subjects like, uh, you know, occult and esoteric topics that, that have previously been in um, – a field that is um, not quite academic yet, but just you know, highbrow and and obfuscated and you know, often poorly written and 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 there's so many fascinating. Um, subjects and topics and people to write about it's, it's just amazing so i felt like uh, i needed to dive in even more uh, with resonances uh, say i was up to my legs but now i sort of threw myself head first into the the um, um, waters that contain all of these things and um, as an addendum to, to this sort of trajectory i have just finished and i'm, I'm sort, of, sort of working on the uh, copy editing and proofing of of a new book of that nature called Source magic, also on inner traditions, that's coming out early next year, and that's basically summing up the lectures and essays I've written um, in between occulture and source magic. Oh, yeah, also as well, one of the things uh, struck me about it is an excellent. Uh, it's a record of the, the of the lectures you've given, so other people, I, including myself, can get the benefit of them. So it's not sort of lost to the sort of the air. Not lost mm -hmm. ether, so. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that that's one of the beautiful things also with um, uh, the Internet has as many drawbacks as it has uh, advantages in the sense that you, know, you make so many things available and, you know, inexpensively and in a fast, efficient way. But there's simply so much that you need to be motivated to really scratch the surface, find an entrance find a page you like, bam, go into it. It's as I feel often, <laughs> although I know there's a lot of good stuff um, uh, online, it's, it's very rare that I sit down and actually do research in that sense. But when you have books, that's a different story because then you have the reading experience in quite a different way. And I think for uh, most of us, uh, that reading experience is associated with two things. It's the pleasure of reading, usually perhaps fiction, um, and it's the uh, association with learning. Uh, there's something in the very book form that um, can translate into ebooks, absolutely, but you very rarely sit down and read a book online. You know, you're like scrolling uh, 250 pages of, of great information. Uh, you, you need a book to do that. So I'm very happy about, um, you know, being productive and also seeing it all bloom into lovely little books. Yeah, it kind of, it folk, I've, I've always preferred reading on a book to reading on a screen. And there seems to be a kind of intangible link between the occult and books, doesn't there? Yes, absolutely. And that I think, um, I think I mentioned that in our culture also, uh, if not, and also in like uh, introductions to uh, the Fenris Wolf and, and things like that, is that the um, resurgence, uh, or at least the, the, the strong emergence of occult book publishing um, from, well, maybe 2000, but specifically, I, I would say in the 2010s and onwards, uh, has been a great... Um, uh, reason for uh, the general um, 
onslaught, we could say, of occulture as a, as a phenomenon, uh, because uh, the Scarlets were there early on and, and um, many other fine publishers making these you know, incredibly beautiful editions that, you know, they make the books attractive um, in themselves as objects in a way, as talismans, as they would probably call them. And and uh, I had a similar way of thinking when with uh, Edda Publishing in the 2010s. Um, and um, it's it just goes to show that um, uh, people are very interested in reading about these things. And that's the healthy thing. Not only these arcane, dusty volumes from, you know, stemming from the Greek magical papyri or or the uh, medieval tomes or <clears throat> grimoires. And I think people want to read about these things in a new uh, way, in a new way that's contextualizing things um, for the times that we live in. Uh, all of these things, you know, there's a strong uh, presence of like grimoire uh, studies, both within academia, but also within the, let's call it the occult world then, uh, at least in our Western sphere. Uh, and I find that um, uh, remarkable. It's also healthy looking at historical things and sort of uh, re representing it um, for today, uh, contextualizing it uh, either through introductions or through uh, more advanced uh, studies of these old texts, whether it be, you know, about um, old Icelandic runes or actual um, Guishic uh, things. Um, and, and it's just like, what relevance do these things have for us today? Uh, I would argue that uh, they do because they speak to us in, um, I would call it like a, a, a mythic language. It's a symbolic language on one hand, but it also, it's also a symbol uh, filled with um, um, signal. There's, there's a, a transference of information that speaks to us on deeper levels than merely he said, she said, uh, he did this, he did that. Uh, and and um, it seems that the power is inherent in uh, the material itself. You know, why else would it be emerging with such uh, force? Uh, and I think that here we have uh, culture in general, on one hand, and we could, you know, state the obvious examples, <laughs> as I've done many times, you know, with, with the Harry Potters and, and the Lords of the Ring and, and many new things also, Midsummer and uh, the Witch and all these things. That's part of the, the, the culture where things pop up like little asphalt flowers in a kind of dead um, entertainment world. And then on the other hand, you have academia, which look at basically the same things, but in a different way. They are more uh, empirical in the classical sense in that they try to dice, discern, uh, to, to pick apart, to look at things um, in a microscope in a way. Um, and, and that's fair and fine. Um, and these two things together, uh, they lead to a presence where it's mentioned everywhere in magazines, on TV, online, of course. Uh, so from having been uh, literally occult for a long time, for a large part of the 20th century and, and, and backward, um, it is now really out in the open. So you could argue that many of the occult things aren't really occult anymore. Okay, so then what is it? Well, you know, you have the the potential group on one hand that's basically uh, the self help thing transform your life da 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 uh, in a way you could say that uh, 
uh, Crowley's Telemais like that. It's hands-on. It's f- the philosophy of will as inherited from, from the German philosophers uh, with a lot of syncretistic magic um, from different parts of the world. And I think that that's uh, very, very good and very, very symptomatic of the, of the occulture in a way, as opposed to the older uh, occult uh, culture. Like, it's like saying the Golden Dawn was occult culture, uh, but Crowley pushed things into an occulture, also by being flamboyant and present in in a cultural uh, setting himself. So it's just for, for me for me an endlessly fascinating things, and you can you can look at it like every day and see things. Uh, oh, that that movie is about that. The, you know, uh, the Northman could be one example, for instance. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's just you know the, these things pop up to. Um, a greater extent than I've ever experienced it. And I see that as a good thing, actually. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, we enjoyed The, the Norseman. I, I, that, I, that was uh, the best film I think I've seen this year so far. And uh, and one of the phrases you use, or one of the ways you analyse this, sort of, uh, the narrative, is that there's a difference on one hand between mere escapism and a true myth and we're true mm-hmm. and and then that sounds like a contradiction in terms a true myth but it's a myth in a sense of a mystical story a story whose importance its potential is like uh, deeper than uh like just a historical a historical account mm-hmm, absolutely and and i think you know you know when you really sort of keep pulling these uh, threads from the great ball of yarn that is, you know, human philosophy or whatever we want to call it. And you just keep pulling, pulling, pulling and asking again, why is it that this is going on right now? Why are all these things so present in our culture that we can actually call it an culture? Well, I would argue that um, it has to do with, with, uh, an urgency uh, in in you know having to do with our uh, survival instinct basically, and I mean that on an individual level, but also on a communal level and on a global level. Uh, and what I mean by that is that um, let's use the the psychological model for instance. As we have an unconscious. The unconscious knows a lot of things and houses a lot of information that our ego, so called, uh, sometimes will not. <laughs> let pass through because it will lead to um, um, I don't know upheaval of our com- comfort zone basically, and and our own petty you know um, searches for for increased personal power things like that. However, the unconscious usually um, wins out <laughs> by by creating signals that you know become so strong that you can't really deny it. And if you keep on denying and repressing, it will actually lead to some form of illness. And I think that the, we have, uh, you know, since um, day one or whatever you want to call it, been immersed in, not only in magical thinking, but also in, in uh, magical behavior, a ritualized behavior uh, um, stemming from and going to our intuitive center in a way uh, that has to do with how do I cope with a chaotic outside, with a chaotic world? Well, we can work together in our little tribe and, and you know, fence off enemies or, or dangerous animals. And uh, we can also learn to react faster, um, uh, increase the sensitivity of our senses. Um, all of these things, uh, they have traditionally been been um, under an umbre- umbrella that today would be called, you know, magical thinking, magical behavior. But 
as with many things from those early days, uh, it has been passed on through genetics. And, and it's not just like a, a, a couple of weird um, psychological traits. It's deeply ingrained within us to, to um, um, acknowledge the importance of speculation, to go to this thing and you go, what if I did this? What if I did that? Speculative thinking, uh, daydreaming, allowing for visions to... Uh, rule decision making uh, to the point where you have a designated person or an office that of the shaman uh, who went on trips or you could go on communal trips and come come back with information meaning a very gnostic approach like there's nothing in between yourself and the information on deep levels that you need to be able to survive uh, and We've done pretty well with this. I mean, we've survived to this day. It seems pretty bleak right now, but let's let's keep our fingers crossed. And and the thing is that um, in our cultural sphere, meaning the Western rational empirical, uh, a lot of people have looked upon these things as you know uh, airy fairy, new agey, wishy washy, anything sort of derogatory with a, an ironical smirk. Uh, but that seems to be changing, and it changes through culture. And I would argue again that that's because we have an inherent need in readdressing the importance of these things. These things being the intuitive uh, validation of our actions and in decision-making, uh, the need to address ecological uh, issues, the need for working together on small local levels to, to basically survive. And the more the outside chaos becomes, um, it seems to be closing in, meaning affecting us all, like we were talking about uh, unusually warm weather in the UK and Sweden where we are. And these things uh, make us very, very concerned and worried. That's not you know, something to merely write about in blog posts, it, it creates a deep uh, anxiety. And how we deal with these things is looking for new ways. And if we cannot make rational decisions saying, I am now going to move to the countryside, I'm going to grow my own veggies, uh, whether it makes a difference or not, we'll see, but it will make me feel better and, and be healthier. So if you can do that, fine. But if you can't and you're still undecided, uh, those unconscious impulses will um, make themselves more and more heard until you take notice of them. And all of these things that we are seeing in the popular culture, like movies uh, of that uh, nature, uh, they are there for that reason because they fill a kind of uh, demand. And then that could be a light uh, demand, meaning entertainment, but it, all, it could also pack a mythical punch. And those are the things that are very, very uh, interesting because um, they will leave traces in people who have taken part of that specific expression and it will hopefully affect them to make decisions of a more uh, constructive nature. Yeah, I mean, the environmental concerns as well, they have like a broader horizon they are they point to a broader horizon about how do we relate to nature in the in the in the grander sense of the word yes. our, our relationship with them and so on and it's very much been a in the last 150 years a sort of tortoise and hare competition where the sort of the tortoise of the unconscious is competing against yeah uh, the hair of technology there's a great uh, metaphor or parable or, or image that um, i've started to use too is that Maybe the problem is that when we become too technologically inclined and you have these 
optical tools to, you know, uh, in quotes, help us see, meaning the microscope on one hand and the telescope on the other hand, you know, to look out and see things closer in the great big vast uh, cosmic space and also like uh, dissect things and look at them in a microscope, even on a cellular level and possibly beyond. Uh, However, uh, what can help us to... um, make healthier decisions in general is just to see and i mean the english language is great in that sense because to see is in you know in part that the ocular thing you see with your eyes but it's also to see in the sense of understanding oh i see Uh, and i think that's enough and i'm not sort of uh as they say dissing science or anything like that on the contrary but i think that uh, it's not our myths that need to become more you know, uh, scientific. It's the science that needs to become more mythic in the sense. It needs to connect with the true needs that we have. And that's a huge problem. That's the huge oil tanker at sea that you cannot turn around 180 degrees. You know, it's simply too unwieldy, too too, uh, uh, slow a process. And that's exactly what, you know, that that constitutes the problems we have today. It's, it's, uh, we are on one hand individually glued to our comfort zones and not likely or willing to to give those things up for a possible benefit that we don't know whether it's true or not. Or you could, you know, um, be radical and say, at least I'm going to try, even if it's only on an egotistical level and it will make me feel good, I'm going to try to change the course of my life. And it's those decisions that I think um, that's where esoteric teachings and and all of you know, things, uh, philosophical strains within the culture can have a very benevolent, beneficial effect on, on individual human beings. Yeah, and, and also the, the word see, I mean, the concept of seeing in the occult comes of a sort of resonance there because it means to be hidden. I suppose these things yeah. are, are hidden in the war. I, you know, they, they're on the surface, they're bubbling away on the sort of frothy surface of, of culture. But I think they, they remain occult and then probably uh, and must always be because they, they, they mean you've got to dig deeper, you've got to mm-hmm. work harder, and then you can, you often drawn in. I've, I'm, I don't apologize for repeating myself as before but uh, you know back in the day you had the 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 storyteller the shaman sitting in front of the uh, the fire telling stories of gods and heroes and monsters yeah. and then and then we, we go to the we go to the cinema and we watch Norseman or, or, or sit around yeah. the television and it's yeah. uh, and it's uh, and essentially we're, we're uh, it's a very similar it's essentially the same kind of experience and um, and actually they're the same stories you know they're, they're this, essentially the same stories aren't they repeated over again and um, and but often we're drawn in by something seduced by something which can't mm-hmm. articulate and then but if you get in, if you are drawn in and you do make those connections, you can see the, the underlying, the underpinning of, yeah. of those of these themes and uh, and how they resonate. And now yeah, that's that's always intriguing as it all comes together. Yeah, and absolutely. And I think you know if we stick with the Northman for for uh, for a while, I think that was was quite a good story. And and the, you know the film is such good too. But but the story is good. It's almost like a kind of a Viking Parsifal in a way because he's like the naive. 
you know, babe in the woods that, you know, someone, he gets, you know, literally fucked over. Uh, but he retains this pure hearted notion of avenging his father specifically. And, and why was this? It's not merely because it's his father, uh, you know, some kind of um, uh, patriarchal uh, honor or whatever. It, it is because of the fact that he allows him to uh, become initiated into the mysteries, you know, by allowing him to be part of those Gnostic, shamanic, psychedelic uh, mysteries. Uh, that, according to my way of looking at it, is why he becomes so adamant in fulfilling his uh, quest for revenge, in a way. Then he realizes, uh, after the fact, that everything is a bit more complex and n not everybody is who they claim to be, etc. And he's not either. But the thing re that remains is that the key thing that glued him together with this uh, initiator, in a way, was the shamanic experience. That, that was actually, you know, the, the, when he became an ad adult in a way, like an initiation rite uh, in, in many ways. And I think that people have been missing out on those things uh, a lot. Uh, and um, it's not just missing out. There's, an, there's a deep-rooted need in us to experience these things. And, of course, different strokes for different folks. You know, some people are interested in Nordic things or some people are interested in the African diaspora. Uh, other people are interested in, in Western ceremonial magic, etc., uh, etc., et ad, uh, ad infinitum. Um, and I think that's exactly when you should use your in, uh, intuition, as a young person, to orient yourself, not necessarily intellectually, you know, what's most fascinating or trendy uh, with all of these new occult publishers, but to go for the stuff that gives you with a, a sense of wow, a sense of wonder, a sense of, uh, well, an important word in this sense, enchantment, You're something that you're enchanted by, because that means that there is something inside you calling to be... Uh, let out and something on the outside knocking on your door. Uh, those things are invaluable and that, that's exactly the kind of thing that our the, the negative dark side of our culture uh, is trying to suppress. Uh, not so much perhaps in, in our specific countries because uh, you know, <laughs> because of a fairly advanced stage of, of uh, uh, civilization, despite everything. But as soon as you go into more draconian, monotheistic environments, uh, you do have um, uh, this situation where to pursue these paths is actually still uh, kind of dangerous. Uh, if nothing else, you will be ostracized or, or bullied, perhaps. You won't be burned at the stake, but, but you will be looked upon as a freak rather than as someone who's trying to survive, basically. Um, so it, it's, uh, it's um, I don't know, I just find it very, very interesting that all of these things are parallel. They're going on right now. Is there a reason for that, why all of this occult stuff is becoming uh, culturized and taking into the visible and making it non-occult in a way and I do and that my theory is what I just said is that that, that it's part of our emergency survival instinct as as uh, not only as um, one culture or one race is the entire species the human uh, being is um, in pretty pretty dire straits so the question is how do we deal with it do you feel that I mean, uh, if you look, you're correct. If you look back in history, it was far more common for people to have a kind of initiatory experience. Whereas nowadays, it feels 
it feels almost yeah it's like a it's, it's become a rarer thing i mean you could even argue that you know christianity has its initiatory experiences um but yet people are moving away from christianity and becoming more involved with the internet and stuff like that do you think do you think we'll go back to a state where we have a more of an initiatory culture uh, well, I certainly hope so. And again, it's it's uh, kind of uh, irrelevant in, in what tradition it is or even in what religion it is. But I do believe it has uh, an important psychological function. I mean, we know that from just uh, basic anthropology with, with um, initiatory rites in, uh, at puberty, for instance, uh, where it, it used to be... Uh, you know, um, actual rituals, whether they were kind of empty and social, it doesn't matter. But today it seems to be in our sphere that the, the real initiation for someone pubescent or, or a, a young person becoming slightly more adult is when they get the first smartphone, right? It's just like uh, there's something missing in terms of an action or an investment or a sense of trust uh, in this uh, young person to say that you are now in a di on a different level than you were yesterday and what the, usually has to do with you know sexual awakenings and and bodily changes and hopefully mental ones also um but in our culture here in in scandinavia for instance uh, there's nothing of that and i think that uh, creates a huge vacuum that is filled with uh, light and possibly uh, detrimental entertainment uh, in which they can see other cultures uh, that do things of that nature and that will be attractive for them. There, ergo, you have, for instance, American media imperialism, which presents solutions that are uh, coming from them, but it's presented as being, you know, uh, the gospel in a way, and young people who are rootless in a way uh, become very susceptible to accepting those um, entertainment visions as actual fact and as models for behavior and, and, and lifestyles, which of course is tied in with consumerism and many, many, uh, well, bad things actually. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for the way myths have been kind of capitalized upon as well. It feels like, uh, I know um, when Jodorowsky talks about people like Spielberg, for example, if we're looking at it from a film perspective, mm -hmm. Uh, he calls it spiritual excrement. You know, he he says that he says this. Uh, that Hollywood has kind of removed love and removed all passion, and um, you could argue that it's removed the kind of the want for initiation, couldn't you, or the want for this yeah. kind of uh, this kind of passion? It's presented a a new corporate version of the world, which doesn't have a doesn't have the space for the occult or the you know the initiatic path. Mm. No, absolutely. It, it's it's very true. But then again, uh, it's been going on in, from if you look at Hollywood specifically, that's been going on for over 100 years now. And that's uh, that's cool. I mean, they also produce a lot of great, you know, great films and young filmmakers have come up and even some some biggies are great because they are what they are. They, they're not really uh, for us who uh, have a slightly more critical approach. Perhaps we can see things for what they are and say, well, this evening I'll just watch something dumb. You know, we can we can it'll be relaxing, like watching a game of sports, a, a soccer game, whatever. You know, it, it really means nothing. But in the moment, it fills you with a light kind of excitement uh, and you can engage in, you know, the, the bad guy or the good guy. Um, maybe that's some kind of inherent need that we have also. Um, so but I, I do think that. Uh, or the most depressing thing <laughs> has in a way been the commercialization of these topics. But then again, it's, it's 
that's the way it's always functioned. Uh, that kind of commercial culture will always be susceptible and actively on the lookout for what's going on in the zeitgeist. And if there is an, a culture that's emerging, then that's the kind of entertainment we'll see. And in a way, I do think that the... Um, uh, insane amount, uh, the outpouring of, you know, stories coming from uh, uh, the comic book world, like with the Marvel films and the, the DC films. Uh, it's basically comics that, you know, they did pack some very light, but still uh, a mythical punch, you know, writing about these uh, gods, uh, trials and tribulations. It was basically the, the, the Greek gods or the Nordic gods, um, repackaged into comic book form and kids love that um i remember i, I used to like that too uh, and there was also this thing which uh, i don't know if you had that in the uk there was a series of comic books called uh, illustrated classics which was basically all the you know great heavy books of world literature in comic book form and i used to dev devour those before um i had uh, you know the motivation to read heavier books uh because because it's, it's a form it's it's a medium in which you can present the same stories over and over and over again and and um, that's essentially how myth has been rolling along throughout the millennia also it's just taken from being strictly um, oral tradition, you know, to being written down, to being uh, presented as dramatic plays, uh, carried on in music through troubadours and many other, you know, uh, examples. And and just just onwards, onwards. And now I guess the the latest medium would possibly be uh, computer games, I guess, that have the same kind of uh, attraction, interaction. Uh, but the question is, uh, what is actually presented? Um, is it still the same uh, didactic or or motivational or teaching that's ingrained in there as, as the original myths? Or is it simply so diluted that it carries nothing? Uh, on a bad day, I would say that's probably so. But on a on a happy, optimistic day, I would say, well, maybe that's just the, the medium that exists today, and it still sort of carries something that kids will uh, they will realize the you know the narrative structure of the hero's quest or whatever in in the sense that they can relate what they have learned through through playing a hundred video games of a similar nature they can see that it's the same structure as when they hear about um, you know uh, homeric epics and that's going because it's basically the same story always same structure always yeah i, I think that uh, series of um comic books uh publications of the sort of classics and uh we, i think they were called golden key is that right <laughs> yeah probably yeah yeah yeah. Mm, i think they were yeah they were yeah and yeah they, they they made it accessible didn't they i mean uh yeah i mean i think also as well i mean uh thinking um in the sort of 80s and so on they had you had things like clash of the titans and uh, mm -hmm. and the ray harryhausen um, yes yeah yes, and, yes. and 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 uh, without me realizing it i mean i was you know, I was I, I was being exposed to sort of classical mythology and um which only oh, only absolutely yeah, you know, which which you know, that sort of gave me this sort of you know, I, I sort of pursued that. I sort of you know, something inside me thought, Oh, this is an interesting narrative without being able to articulate it consciously yeah. and then going to the sources and so on and so maybe more optim you know, and slightly more optimistically, I mean like with the Norsemen, I mean, um they're using modern day 
technology, the, the utmost modern day technology, and making it very accessible to people. And mm -hmm. and some some people watching that film, they will they will think, oh, that business with the tree, what was all that thing? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so on. yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> and I think also it's interesting how how we are very much um, formatted as young people by by the culture we consume, and that's why it's important <laughs> to to make sure that there's good stuff around. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, if we think back at you know what kind of movies and and uh, books and and uh, TV did we consume? Well, I was certainly drawn to uh, the darker, cooler stuff without really understanding why. And my parents let me watch you know anything I wanted or or supported reading because reading in itself was something important. And and uh, that of course formatted me. I have you know dear memories of there was one summer specifically when. Swedish television, which at that, that time only had two channels, and, and on like Tuesday evenings at 9.35, I still remember the time, they used to, to show these old American monster films, you know, um, and, and it was so um, formative for me in terms of aesthetics, in terms of being scared by a certain kind of, uh, you know, dramatic tricks. Uh, it has stayed with me forever. And of course, that's how we build our identities too. It's like, it's what we take in uh, and filter that be, you know, become parts of us. So that's why it's important to, again, trust your intuition and only accept things uh, where you feel that kind of resonance because that resonance is part of... Um, of the mythic, uh, let's call it the mythic feedback. Uh, you take something in and it might be a complete dud or blank or, or stripped and completely pointless. You, you, you don't even chew that, you just spit it out in a way. Uh, on the other hand, there will be things that are inexplicably attractive. And, and there's a reason for that because it speaks to, um, uh, well, I guess to your soul or to deeper layers of yourself. Uh, and those are the things you need to go for. Yeah, I mean the uh, the Universal Studios in the in the thirties. I mean they lots of people from sort of Jewish communities in Europe sort of yeah. went to to America and joined the studios. And they and the, what they drew off was the the folklore of Europe, the werewolf, exactly. the vampire, and and also classics of literature like you know Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And so. Absolutely, and they did it also in an aestheticized way, and that's that's the importance. I think you know each uh, not generally but each cultural period and has its own aesthetics and and they certainly brought some very cool you know german expressionism uh, to hollywood which helped very much cr to create the aesthetics of film noir for instance uh, which then led on to other things and it's just you can see these sort of aesthetic uh, strains just as you can backtrack in the um well let's call it the, the magical anthropological or the occultural uh cultural repository we can read books about crowley for instance and see you know um, lineages initiations uh, heritage or in the golden dawn that you know these people were associated they, they, this was a writer or this was a painter and these they had both artistic lineages and they had uh, magical uh, lineages and it becomes like a big um, 
uh, what do you call it, like a hereditary tree in a way. What do you call that? Well, you make a graphic symbol of, of an overview or a display of someone's uh, family tree. You can see like a family tree uh, in many of these strains um, that also merge and you see a connection there. Well, Austin Spare was for a little bit connected to Crowley. That's interesting. And uh, Austin Spare and Crowley was connected to Kenneth Grant. That's interesting. So when you have that kind of family tree overview, you realize that very, very important things in our culture are affected or uh, instigated, initiated by quite few people. And it's not people who do that through... demagogic uh, way, so the ones who scream the loudest. It's the ones that have the most um, impact, the strongest impact on a cultural level. So, I mean, the the master stroke, uh, you know, the the genius of Crowley was not his syncretism, but it was his formulating his syncretism and making books that then lived on. Same thing for Spare, who was such an avid um, self-publisher in a way. And, you know, to know whether consciously or just intuitively that I need to formulate this because uh, it, things might not be happening for me while I'm alive, but it will be v- um, worthwhile and valuable for those who come uh, after me. And that that's the true generosity of, I would say, like real magicians. And it's, People could argue, well, they were just narcissistic to the max. You know, they were just <laughs> trying to, to live on after life. But, you know, that's something we all think about. And, and, and some people um, will break through that. They will become, uh, if not immortal, then at least they will, their lifespan will be longer because of the fact that they have left some relevant culture behind. Uh, and that's that's a rare thing. You know, for instance, uh, take someone like uh, Karl Marx. It's not uh, his theories or ideas that are interesting or that live on. They have actually failed quite miserably. Uh, but him as a cultural phenomenon, uh, being like a celebrity in a way from that kind of mid 19th century uh, tumultuous uh, Germany, that's an interesting person. And that's the reason why he's still around in our zeitgeist. You know, people and and spirits can live on uh, if they have enough, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Well, not materiality, but but agency beyond death in a way. Yeah, it's interesting in the book you kind of compare, you you start to compare um, Crowley and uh, Rudolf Steiner. Yes, yes. Uh, And I mean, they're two names that just endlessly pop up you know if you you know it's very difficult to start investigating the occult or the occult rather in any way and not see those two names appear and Bavatsky would be another one obviously but um, yeah uh, why do you think it is that certain you were saying earlier that you know certain characters seem to sort of uh, play massive roles um, why do you think that is well, if, if one thing is is their own persona that you know psychologically could be you could call them obsessionals, you could call them narcissistic, you could call them many things that almost sound derogatory. And and I uh, I don't mean to sound derogatory because I see them as good important people, uh, but their own drives has to do with their own pursuit of power and and maybe there's a strategy there leaving something behind, you know. Uh, but again, it just goes to show that um, they, like Crowley and Steiner, for instance, they were very uh, sensitive. They had their antennae out. And Crowley, who was a little bit of a uh, megalomaniac in his you know, toolbox, uh, 
created his own, not just a philosophical or magical system, but he also branched out in why let's, you know, let's also include some religion in there. Of course, he would be the prophet. You know, that's where it fails for me. Uh, but in terms of a philosophy, uh, keeping up the heritage from Nietzsche and Schopenhauer in terms of the philosophy of will, and then adding... Um, very healthy syncretistic uh, approach to magics coming from from different parts of the world uh, there i think crowley was brilliant uh, but again and what he did was to formulate these things and actually making sure that they were all published and, and now it's like um, an industry with endless regurgitations within academia you know crowley is uh, uh, much more present now than he's ever been so he would be happy uh, and steiner of course was a little bit uh, I wouldn't say smarter, but he was uh, he had a broader palette in a way. So he made sure that anthroposophy, which is a legacy coming from theosophy, um, that it included uh, other things than merely his writing about esoteric concepts. You know, you have the Waldorf school system, you have uh, uh, organic farming, you have uh, Veleda, you know, this company that makes... Um, uh, sort of clean products uh, and um, anthroposophy as such, which is like a, um, a school of um, spiritual thought, I, I think you could say. Uh, so he left behind a lot of things and movements uh, that are uh, all very related to the main Gnostic thing, which of course Crowley is also, meaning the individual needs to wake up to realize an inner or you know, possibly cosmic truth about how we're all in, interconnected. Uh, it's a holistic thing. And when you wake up to that, you, have, you can choose which kind of approach. You, you, you can say no, uh, but you can also say yes and embrace it and be part of this holistic thing. And, and that goes for all cultures. Um, other cultures, like in Asia, for instance, they're usually not uh, person-oriented. They're not uh, instigator or creator-oriented. Sure, you have the Buddha, but the Buddha is a state of mind. Um, and, and a few other people also, like, you know, there's uh, a mythical figure, figure called uh, Bodhidharma, who, who developed Zen Buddhism, whether he existed or not, or whether Lao Tse existed or, um, you know, we can't be sure. But the books that are out still being uh, distributed in their names have a deep impact on culture even today. So that's kind of remarkable. And it goes, of course, for, for uh, you know, the anthology that we call the Bible too, you know, different people put that together over a period of uh, a long time, uh, but still it's widely available and it's sort of like the cornerstone for good and bad of, of a culture that has been predominant for a long, long, long time. So it's not through, uh, you know, political things. It's not even through wars or these causal human basic things. It's only culture that really remains. And you could argue that even history writing is not so much an objective thing. It's part of uh, culture which can be you know, very subjective. But the important thing is that we can't interpret and assess that if there is no uh, form um, that we can take in, meaning usually books, written stuff, art stuff, paintings, so, you know, scratchings, drawings, um, anything that uh, preserves a thought or a spirit in the material. Mm, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that kind of bound... Um steiner and crowley was the fact that they sort of became influential within an existing group and then created a new group and i wonder if 
have we left room for people to do that again now you know this is the the thing i often think about is who is the next crowley who's, who's going to be the next big kind of um influential you know but on a on a sort of crowley steiner level it, you know have we left ground for people like that to to sow their <sighs> seeds yeah that's a very good question i i think that um it's a little bit uh, a dilemma also uh, about the esoteric nature about uh, in these groups, for instance, um, Theosophy versus Anthroposophy, Golden Dawn versus Crowley's Orders. Uh, things were still pretty occult at the time. And that perhaps made it easier for someone uh, to see that, wow, there's great potential in this kind of group thing, the group dynamic. I'm triggered by it. I love it. I want to have my own group. That's basically like, you know, uh, kids in the sandbox, you know, I'll build my own sandbox over here. Maybe that's part of the human dynamic. They did it and they did a great job. And can we see something similar today? Hmm. I, I'm not sure I can because there are no real like influential uh, esoteric environments of the same nature. We have the ones stemming from those days, but that's just a legacy that's carried on in a good, good way or bad way. Um, but there's really... I think maybe one one uh, problem or challenge here is that uh, is there at all you know any occultism left? Uh, I I know that there is you know there there are still secret groups and stuff like that. But then again, then they won't have this crossover potential of becoming occulture. These groups that I'm talking about, they are very happy to be occult and not have any like you know online presence or anything because they want to do work in in. Um, a tradition that's, you know, uh, it doesn't need to, what do you call it, uh, proselytize. It doesn't need new members, for instance. It doesn't need to attract people. You know, it's it's um, a bit timeless in that sense. Mm, whereas Crowley and, and Steiner, they were, um, these environments were around. They attracted a lot of people, but it was still kind of esoteric. And and uh, I don't think that's the reason, though, why why these two people as uh, human individuals uh, wanted to break free. I think that's more of a, like a psychological disposition that certain people have. They're not content in playing second fiddle. They, they want to have, they want to run their own show and it can go, you know, it's the same dynamic that we can find in uh, rock and roll bands or other groups or fraternities where someone breaks free and creates their own stuff like a company also two founders create a company that becomes successful usually one founder breaks away and starts his own um it seems to be part of of human nature but i do think that the reason why it won't be so visible is not that that dynamic is gone it's just that there are no real uh, occult groups or occultural sort of semi-visible occult groups uh, that have that cultural presence it's it's taken on by completely different kinds of networks like I'm thinking like you know uh, anonymous perhaps or or WikiLeaks or it's always something that's not necessarily spiritual it's something co more connected with politics or tight guy tight rebellion against too much control etc. I think uh, although the spiritual is very, very, very important. I would argue perhaps the most important factor uh, at this point in our uh, uh, civilization and, and existence. Uh, unfortunately, I don't, think, I don't see that rooted in a mass way. 
in that sense. Uh, that's why occulture is interesting because I would say that they are the occultural manifestations are like asphalt flowers coming up through the, the rep very repressive uh, constructs that humans have built, uh, usually stemming from a monotheistic environment, but it, it exists beyond that also. Yeah, and I suppose um, this sort of, uh, which relates to lots of occult um, impulses, the the sort of teenage, the teenage phase, I think, Mr. Abrahamson, you mentioned in the, in the, in the book about, you know, wanting to always rebel against your your parents, parents yes. in the spiritual or cultural sense of the word. I mean, uh, you can only maintain that for so long. And and sometimes I think uh, you can go to the other side of the, the coin, the other side, the, the disadvantage of it is that you're not pioneering you're not breaking your ground you're constantly trying to reinvent something you're yes yes yeah, so it's like you know in the early 90s i had some connection with sort of chaos magic and so on and there in the early 90s the you know the group i had some connection with they they decided that they were going to throw out the, the tree of life completely because it was mm -hmm. hierarchical we don't want a hierarchical thing like the tree of life and <laughs> yeah. with all its with its roots literal and and symbolic yeah. in in judo christianity we we're going to have a vertical hierarchy and, and they invented this new tree which <laughs> they which was going to take over was going to you know sweep away the uh everything else well you know that's over 20 years ago now nearly mm -hmm. and 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 i I still haven't found anything as adaptable and as um, um, protean as the the, the cannibalistic tree of life, but uh, but I'm you know I'm very happy to be proven wrong. But uh, yeah. so it, it does go both ways, isn't it? And and there's also like there's a very vivid phrase in the culture book uh, about um, you know we can believe anything we want now. Well, at least in the West we can we can believe mm. um, anything we want, but in a way we don't really believe anything. Maybe we can't believe anything. And the other project. The opposite extreme to that is the position where you're completely dogmatic and, and uh, your mortal eminent is, is anybody else politically or spiritually who just happens to be on the other side of things. And uh, yeah, that, that's also very toxic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, it's... It's really not an, a new concept, but I think one of the greatest culprits in our culture is, is um, the um, very rapid emergence of... Um, online culture and the technology that's sort of associated with that and, and sort of facilitates that because what's happened is that we are simply so fragmented and uh, we quickly became addicted to the technology itself for transmission of communication, transmission of information, transmission of, of emotional uh, messages and things like that instead of communicating um, on a more tangible or, or perhaps even spiritual uh, or material level. Technology is also a proxy. It's not really the material. The gadgets are material, of course, but it's not the same as having a face-to-face -face conversation. FaceTime is not uh, a conversation in the sense that you can really convey between the lines emotions and stuff. And of course, definitely not within the texting, uh, where you have a simplification of language that's you know incredibly detrimental, I would say. Um, and for us, it's no problem. We can sit here and be you know, a smug and adult and, you know, cultivated and talk about these uh, lofty things. But we like but to think it, we are. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes, but it is a problem for, for a younger generation who, who um, 
have have the technology as their not second nature even but like their first nature and that's the basis of of how they communicate and not only that but it's also what they communicate uh, the it's a fictionalized um, way of looking at the world where even you know places make sure that they are quote uh, grammable unquote so reality changes so that the people who they want to come there um, can partake in the uh, dissemination of uh, photographs from that place to make sure that they are parts of an uh, basically illusory lifestyle um, because it usually mimics a lifestyle that is much more advanced and affluent than, than what they have uh, so it's a weird weird situation where uh, let's call it uh, real information with transformation potential gets shoved to the side for the immediate gratification of showing, um, uh, well, you could say it's a symbolic image or just leave it that image where you show an image of yourself as if you were in a different position in life. That can be used for magical purposes, but that requires an awareness of it. You know, this kind of almost uh, fake it till you make it. But even that requires a kind of strategy that is based on uh, honesty and self-knowledge, meaning I am not happy right now. I know that I'm not happy because I'm not, I want to be in that position over there. But that's when the... Um, uh, awoken or um, the magical person uh, creates a strategy to move uh, him or herself over to that uh, position that's desired but but i think that the young people specifically today who grew up with who grew up with um, technology that basically nurtures uh, uh, great and also satisfying uh, illusion um, will find it hard to validate information that has what I call transformation potential because it usually requires quite hard work. And today everything is gratified more or less immediately. All you have to do is, is press, you know, like or a heart or another emoji or just post another picture where you look the same as a billion other people uh, making the same poses and creating some kind of... Uh, it's not uh, a sign of life. It's a sign of uh, effacing individuality uh, under the ages or banner of, you know, quote, individuality. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's an illusion, basically. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've been reading a lot of Baudrillet again recently, and he's, he's, you know, he talks about simulation and kind mm -hmm. of authenticity. And it feels like, in a way, maybe the occult or, you know, kind of joining an occult order or practicing the magical act presents one of these you know um technologically minded youth <laughs> uh, with a kind of authentic experience and maybe that could be part of the kind of appeal the kind of up to uptick in the occult that we're seeing re um you know at the moment it could just be that in a way it presents an authentic experience you know a, a, an initiation is a deeply powerful thing isn't it it's a um you know it's an authentic experience when you do it the right way you know i, I do i've often wondered if you know, one of the kind of keystones of why the occult <clears throat> or why kind of Philema or, you know, uh, the Golden Dawn or, you know, what, uh, whatever, whichever, you know, version you want to ascribe to. I wonder if that that's kind of what its key appeal could be that you, you, you it promises authenticity. 
Mm, absolutely, and 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 uh, if it's good, it not only promises it, but it delivers it in terms of initiation rituals in which you are taking place, you know, taking um, uh, place and time uh, with your physical body in something that you don't really know what's going to happen. Uh, people today know a lot of things; they know they can predict, you know, um, the law of probability for this. If I do that, um, uh, this happens. You know, this is kind of a, a causal awareness, but in an initiation uh, for it to be powerful you need to be overwhelmed either by sensory impressions or by um, philosophy pure and simple or a combination and I'm thinking that the problems usually in our culture they usually arise after um, after the fact after it has happened because that's what signifies a good uh, well order or a fraternity or a magical group in a sense that there is a language and a terminology and a tradition of taking care of the person after the initiation and not just handing over a book saying and a funny hat and a and a certificate saying you are now on this level because it's not that simple that that then we're talking more like I would say like hollow things like, um, you know, old school Freemasonry, uh, which usually it doesn't really carry any magic as far as I know, but it, it really is more like a fraternity where you go through the motions. But one another uh, example of that where, where people are interested, attracted to an initiation and they get sort of disappointed or scared even, uh, that would be the, the psychedelics. You know, in the 60s, there was like mass consumption of uh, of LSD and other um, psychedelics, and today we have um, ayahuasca and, and other simple plant medicine that has, you know, of course, deeply magical qualities and, and deeply uh, mythical potential in the sense that it can take you to a place where you look at yourself and you realize things, you can connect the dots without disturbance from the outside noise or from other people's demands and it's just like uh, you are elevated to a level of uh, severe insight and I mean severe in the sense that it it's fantastic but it can also be severe in the sense that if you don't get help in trying to put the pieces back again then you might just retract and say that was a good trip but that trip has the potential of you changing your life uh, in order to become uh, more a better person in the sense not i mean from any kind of objective moral uh, point of view but simply a better person more in line with whoever it is that you want to be uh, and that's why um I find it very interesting, and I think that that kind of experience, you know, going on uh, ayahuasca excursions to South America or some workshop in a rural setting or something, it's it's uh, those things are definitely part of the culture, uh, as is a serious psychedelic uh, journeying and exploration, um, because it leads to something that no one else can can give you, uh, and I believe that the key to all of these things being good, that is the gnostic approach. It, there's no hindrances, no layers, no people uh, between your experience um, as a human being and what you experience. You know, you don't need to have someone uh, in the moment explaining to you uh, or or telling you what to believe or how to perceive and how to to experience. What you bring back from your exploration uh, is something for you and you alone. And what I mean then by you know that you need a terminology or a group possibly to that's more like processing an out of place 
experience. That can be true for traumatic traumatic experiences also. You know, council groups after a you know um, horrible uh, accident, for instance, or or after war or whatever. It's just uh, we as humans need to process things, especially things that we cannot fathom ourselves. Uh, and sometimes these soul searching journeys can be that. And then, of course, it can be good to uh, ventilate. But the the what's going on on the inside, the information, that's yours and yours alone. If you want to share it, that's fine. And I think that that really what the original magical journey is about the magical path is you securing that information in ways that may be traditional or they might be completely experimental uh, occult history esoteric history uh, ha- can provide ample suggestions sources of inspiration there are plenty of groups around plenty of teachers that you will have to see if you can trust them Uh, but that may be part of the game also Uh, so it's not like it's lacking in terms of great uh, quantum self-development on the contrary we probably have more of that than ever before but it's not going to be online it's not going to be in um, uh, a diluted form. Uh, it's not going to be in, uh, you know, um, basically it's the human, human interaction that is the key to that. And, and, uh, whether it's in dialogue or whether it's an actual practice or ritual together or initiation rituals, um, that, uh, you know, uh, people, uh, will set out on this path, set out on this journey, and they will find, find extraordinary things. But you have to set out. That's the thing yeah. in, in real life. I think it's experiential, isn't it? I mean, the uh, there has to be that sort of living experience of. I mean, one of the of initiation or it, with any with any the the conflict of interest, I suppose, between the current age and its um, and ubiquitous nature of information in through IT technology and so on, on the internet and um and the the and uh, the experience that you can have the experience that you can have in an initiatory uh, body is that uh, people get com- often people get confused between information and understanding and um, and the actual experience and I've, I've had conversations with people before who were preparing shall we say for initiations one sort or another and um, I remember saying to one individual in particular that well you're not going to find authentic the authentic experience of initiation inside the pages of the book and their response to me and I quote was that I didn't read it in a book I looked at it on the internet I mean that's an extraordinary <laughs> that is an extraordinary um, uh, statement and um, and where's the authenticity where's the authenticity of uh, you know i think often the way i think often people don't you know in initiation in the fullest sense of the word people think oh well this is just some sort of like uh, formality i have to go through to join some sort of social group mm. actually th- there might be an element of that but initiation on the deeper level is 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 something uh, you know and one of the things uh what uh, is more make it more likely to work if you're open to it if you're ready for it is the, is the psychology of surprise it's going to make that impact on you mm, absolutely and i think that that's uh, you know why the the reason we have a lot of uh, uh, groups of interest uh, interest groups or or fraternities or whatever you want to call them is that they provide uh, an 
a static or a language saying, uh, hey, look at us. And if you feel that sort of positive uh, resonance with whatever symbols they have, then you should go for that um, because there's a reason, as I said before, for that uh, attraction. It's something deeply rooted within you. Um, but then, of course, you, you, it can be uh, shallow and it can be merely social, as you say. But um, if they provide some form of, of uh, initiation, it, it needs to be something that, in a way, uh, glue, glues you together with a group. I mean, this is from, from the group's point of view. You don't want to initiate someone who says, okay, thank you, goodbye. You know, you, you want them to, to hang on and take the ne next step and the next initiation because most of these things are uh, really human construct and keeping people in structures and preferably hierarchies too. And that can be good. It's like going to school in a way. If you accept the need that you need basic, uh, basic schooling, then you have to adapt to certain rules. You get there at eight and you leave at three or whatever and you go for a certain number of years. Some may argue far too many. <laughs> but, but still, you know, it's a kind of... Um, contract that you have and that contract remains later on by you know boring things like paying taxes and hopefully you will get something for your tax money but it also true in esoteric groups and and uh, magical orders is that you and that's what crowley did with the golden dawn in a way he, he published those rituals in the uh, first volume of the equinox and that of course was a big no-no and a sacrilege in a way for the people on the inside because they they you know revered this material it was like um, sacred material but for the outside world it really didn't matter at all people didn't care you know it didn't change anything and then of course later on you know uh, Crowley's books were were bootlegged too in a way and and it's just you have this it's not a karmic thing it's just how things work you know, there will always be someone who takes the, the secrets and, and uh, flaunts them. And quite often in order to build his or her own environment as being the best or the most insightful, the one with the most secrets, the most attractive. It's just uh, human nature. Uh, but again, if you know that and, and feel that you want to have something that is, you know, I, I don't want to go into a group like that in order to maybe experience something that I could maybe express as being, you know, spiritually valid or relevant for me or inspiring in a quantum kind of way. Um, then you should probably pursue your own uh, path of self-exploration and exploration also like within cultures that you find attractive, within uh, cultural groups that you find attractive. The magical bits and pieces are not necessarily available in magical, like in quotes, uh, groups and settings. The, the most magical revelations for me have come uh, basically in, in nature, nature as such, you know, for the forest, being um, at sea, stuff like that, being in such connection with a, a life force that's beyond our kind of petty, intellectual, uh, cogitating, uh, meandering, mental uh, thing you need to be sort of break away from that and go into the greater life force that has been very beneficial uh, to me and revealing to me much more so than having basically spent my entire life in different groups and societies uh, but that's good too because it has, has uh, taught me that you know uh, perhaps it's not here you know you, you learn by uh, 
and not becoming disappointed, but you learn by accumulating information that after a while you realize that uh, the process has been me realizing that I don't really need this to realize, you know, um, how magical the world is. For that, you need an open mind and, 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 and a tolerant mind and that you can achieve uh, or find or acquire or develop or train in, in many different ways. Yeah, uh, I mean, so that's the key, you know, to when you're on the path, uh, make sure it's your path and that you're not uh, indoctrinated or, or influenced too much by people who want to sell you their stuff. Yeah, um, all, all knowledge is paper. and uh, But like, you know, as, as Crowley himself points out, you know, the mysteries are not something that can keep communicated easily or, or at all and the 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 uh, it's a mystery and the not in the sense it's like a kind of a crossword puzzle it's yeah. a, it's a it's a mystery in the original sort of classical sense of the word exactly and and i liked what you said there about the, you know information is uh, paper or however however you put mm. it it's like you know there, there are other things that in within culture that can really uh, become tangentially or culture and those are things that relate more to art uh, and i don't mean illustration i mean art that goes uh where there's more than meets the eye, so to speak, you know, and that's why a poem, for instance, can uh, open you up to a magical sensibility much more than magic in theory and practice by Crowley. In a way, that's a technical manual, but but um, some pieces of poetry or even fiction, um, I for one love what's called magical realism. It's basically a straight literary narrative, but there are weird things going on, and and that makes my mind go. Um, you know, uh, it, it creates a jolt or a tilt or a little shock to the system that opens me up to become more uh, partaking of a greater kind of fantasy when reading that particular text. And of course, we know it goes for movies too. Do we want to watch the latest Avengers movie or do we want to watch something new by Hodorowsky or, or David Lynch, for instance? It, it is a matter of taste, but we know that those filmmakers... Um, create an impact in our minds that we have not only become accustomed to and like, but every time there's something new, there's something unexpected. And in the unexpected, within cultural expressions, uh, it will be challenging because it will be like a little mini trip in a way where you have to go, wow, that's amazing, or whoa, that's not cool. You know, you have to make some kind of uh, chewing and swallowing um, uh, process instead of, as I said before, not even chewing, but just quickly uh, spit it out again, like uh, like the Marvel films or the superhero films. It's just, uh, too, it's just so beautiful. You can't analyze the music, but it takes you places. It gets you daydreaming immediately. You can find yourself crying when listening to some music, and you simply cannot explain why. Same is true for paintings and other you know, expressions of, of uh, artistic creativity. It, it goes beyond the rational. Uh, it um, is tangential to, it connects with the magical and the mythical, or at least it should do that. And that's exactly uh, why occulture is a good word, because, you know, it connects occult with culture, and it really goes both ways. You know, the, the occult philosophies have been as influenced by the contemporary times at the times as vice versa it's not a one-way street i just wish there was more um 
more David Lynch and less less Avengers. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, I have to make you disappointed there. That's why we have to cherish the the artists who really go to that length of being uh, not only honest to themselves, but also having the power and the force and the vision to to toss it out there for us to to partake of also. Because if nothing else, it will be an inspiration to know that there are other people out there who see the world not perhaps in the same way but in a similar way enough to inspire us to keep looking oh absolutely i mean the reason i became a filmmaker was because i was so, i had such a visceral shock watching blue velvet um mm. you know my favorite director of all time is david lynch i'm uh, yeah abs- yeah absolutely obsessed with him and yeah no, absolutely and he he was so so great also in the sense that uh, i mean he he still is great but but it's just that that kind of era when he was really um uh hot in a way uh, it took that uh, surrealistic approach that he had had before also, but harsher, like Eraserhead style, and 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 present that in as kind of a uh, language that was commercial, that was attractive, that was sort of mainstream in a way, beautiful perversion, and the beautiful transgression that can really affect culture. You know, Eraserhead can only be a cultic expression um, or an occultic even because it speaks with an esoteric language to to the few that uh, have the guts or the time to sit and, and watch it uh, whereas something like blue velvet was really like on the borderline uh, between mainstream uh, iconography and absolute you know uh, madness <laughs> in yeah. a way. so and, and and containing a lot of you know interesting insightful um psychological stuff also that i would say that that, that was uh, blue velvet and and lynch at that time even with twin peaks which was like a, a more a lighter thing but still that that's part of an occulture for mm-hmm. sure oh definitely i mean blue a blue velvet is the kind of epitome of the kind of behind closed doors nature of the occult isn't it in many ways it's this kind of hidden you know hidden in plain sight this kind of reality going on that it's sort of it's framed within the kind of reality of picket fences and uh uh you know this kind of like idealized america but behind the behind if you sort of peel back the layer and look a little bit deeper you see this kind of sort of uh, i don't know like mysterious and kind of slightly scary undercurrent <laughs> and it's uh, oh definitely yeah, absolutely yeah. and i think that he's very whether he is into psychedelics or were or, or has never been but it's a natural it is very much uh, his films are very much like like uh, psychedelic trips in that sense in that there is an overarching structure that you can cling to if you want to but but uh, if you just let go it will be a very insightful and colorful and sometimes deep disturbing and terrifying experience also yeah just like the new twin peaks that pretty much sums up the the most recent one which i thought was a masterpiece but mm-hmm. <laughs> that's so i think um we should wrap up a bit and i'd like to know what your feelings on like where do you think a culture goes next what's the uh what's the future that if you were to project forward um i can see um uh, continuation of thematic presence, meaning in movies and literature and, and the music, there will be a continued and, and possibly increasing presence of uh, occult uh, themes. Uh, and that doesn't only mean like, you know, pointing back to history of, you know, this witch was cool or whatever, meaning also philosophical strains within um, uh, cultural expressions and thereby it becomes occultural. So I think that's a good thing. And then you, I've also been thinking a lot about, you know, um, you can't say that one thing is a good thing and the other thing is a bad thing. But in terms of the occult, you know, this kind of repository that contains 
seed that contains germinating seed underground in the dark and the hidden, uh, that needs to be, uh, <laughs> I don't know, not protected, but it needs to be left alone in a way. And of course, it's an environment that is filled with survival uh, instinct and intelligence, and it will. And I mean, concretely, by like groups that I mentioned that I know exist, but who prefer not to be visible. They prefer to do their work. They might publish within their group and stuff in order to help the members of that group. Um, and that, that's something I find very, very hopeful also, meaning breaking away from the visibility of social media, for instance, not flaunting every little ritual, every little magical tool that you've constructed, uh, because that's just like, you know, a foodie. That's like presenting a food picture of what you ate today. Um, so I think that uh, a kind of an occultism, a new kind of occultism that is uh, becomes occult or remains occult willingly in order to protect itself. Because there is a very, very interesting thing going on, as, as you know also. Uh, it's the concept of, you know, enchantment versus re-enchantment. Is the world now re-enchanted? And I think I... I uh, wrote in a culture specifically concerning uh, academia. You know, the academic studies is booming. There are now chairs uh, in increasing uh, places and the conferences about, you know, Western esotericism and all these things. And on the whole, I see that as a good thing. But it's definitely not uh, re-enchanting the world. I would say that academic studies of these things is actually de-enchanting it in a similar way that rational um, empirical uh, rationality did at one point and religious intolerance did at one point. But uh, on the other hand, the positive aspects of academia looking into these things is um, far outweighs the negative aspects of it being like, you know, nitpicked and, and picked apart and looked upon as something uh, inherently freakish because that's basically what they're doing. Uh, which is strange because many of the academics actually come from magical backgrounds, you know, from, from esoteric groups and stuff. But I guess they found uh, career opportunities instead and then they have to adapt that in order to get uh, tenure and positions and stuff like that. So I will see the value of the academic work as um, uh, custodians of information. It's not their deductions or conclusions that are interesting because they very rarely are. Uh, but they, they assemble information and preserve them in book form. And that, again, is what has been needed uh, and will be needed also in the future if and when people are trying to rebuild a civilization, uh, if this one breaks down, then you need, just like we can look back and say, well, at least as far back as Greece and some fragments from Egypt and stuff, what were they up to? And we can still use those things today and, and find inspiration, if nothing else, in those things. And I would like for this culture to leave something uh, behind uh, for the future uh, readers and practitioners and, and occultists of the future. And then I think that all the shards or the pieces of the puzzle, the, even the academic ones, will be of use and relevance in, in make, making the puzzle of the future. And I hope also my thinking and the writings about occulture and, and you know other things, um, I do that mainly because it, it amuses me. I love to talk to people like you and to, to people who find this interesting also. But I think they will have a value. The books will have a value in the sense that they have a different approach than the academics. And that approach will be much more... Uh, conducive to experimentation, to personal practice, to uh, appreciating agnostic uh, attitude. Um, uh, at least that's what I hope. 
Yeah, and uh, I mean, <laughs> well, I feel uh, you know we're coming to drawing to a, a close, and uh, I, I feel quite disappointed in a sense because we could have talked about so much else. I mean, uh, we hardly <laughs> on the uh, we could have done a <laughs> with the with the uh, anthology of um, essays and talks in the uh, culture book. I mean, we could, there were so many other things like the topi thing we could have anyway. Oh yeah, I mean, maybe we'll do a culture part two at some point. Too. Well, we could easily, yes, we could absolutely, easily. and and and. Uh, you know let, let's do it soon because soon source magic the next book will come out and then that will you know, yeah, have yeah. precedence i think also as well you know um on reflect you know just reflecting very personally i mean uh, you know i'm a, i'm a passionate about film as well i'm a very visually oriented person and uh, one of the things i i've always appreciated and always been i like it when i'm surprised by it and amazed by it is that you know i see different styles of film genres of film as like like different colored doors you can go in and it always does impress me that you can have this immersive experience when it works well whatever you know it can be like a, a silly comedy or or um uh, uh, like a horror film made in the 70s or uh, you know uh, or even you know all sorts of different things science fiction and um i always appreciate that and uh, and um i like to be surprised and even Dare I say, in defence of Marvel, I I was I was surprised, but I like it when it, yeah, it's become very formulaic in lots of ways. But I I did I I appreciated um, like Loki because I like it because it took you on a journey about the nature of free will and good and evil and yeah and, yeah. and Moon Knight uh, that that took me into interesting territory. So slightly and also back to the Norseman. I mean, my understanding is actually that that film is actually based on a traditional saga. So it's that's 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 very interesting how we have this very ancient story. How much flesh has been put on the bone to present it to modern audiences? I'm not sure, but um, you know the central character Hamlet. Apparently, that that's the root of the word, um, the name Hamlet, which uh, right, right, makes uh, that perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. they're you know so we're back back where we started from. So yeah, and that that's interesting too because you know you have like a key figure like like Shakespeare um uh, who basically um we owe him so much and it's basically because he sat down and wrote these stories, you know. It's amazing and it's like another cornerstone uh, of of our literary and also of our uh, assessment of the world through through literature, but then basically what he did, he used you know historical characters to to uh, project on his per- dramat- dramatic persona. But he has a lot of mythic potential, and I'm sure he took a lot of stuff from old folk tales and and uh, older mysteries and you know this you know the tempest and stuff like that that is so filled with um, you know uh, psychedelic references and it's just incredibly interesting. So in in Shakespeare, we also have a great sense of of uh, uh, culture in the sense that he was present, he was successful, you know, and and very very talented and left a large legacy. But what is contained in the material uh, has to do with that also. It wasn't just that he was a you know a great guy who wrote some great uh, plays. It was also what was in the plays and how he formulated them. It needs there are many things, many. Um, Things, uh, many small rivulets that need to merge into a real mythic river that will be so powerful that it can, we can still be talking about it today. And that's remarkable and that's magical. And it's really the, the very essence of our culture. Yeah, definitely. So um, you, you told us about your book, Source Magic, but um, knowing you, you've probably also got 
a, a bunch of other stuff coming out. So, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I just actually um, uh, published uh, my, my first novel in Swedish. That's probably not so interesting for, for, uh, for your listeners, but it's been great for me to actually write something uh, long and a novel in Swedish. So that I'm very happy about that. But then, of course, there's going to be uh, over the summer, uh, Fenris Wolf 11 and also Fenris Wolf 12. They have been a little bit slow in coming, but they will both be out this summer. And then, I don't know, it never ends. It's just new new, new book projects all the time. If people want to get hold of Fenris Wolf, because I, 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 I remember I used to see it. I can't remember which store in London it was that used to stock it the most. Well, usually Atlantis and Treadwells and, and Watkins too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have, uh, I usually uh, tell people to, to uh, uh, come, come to the site, you know, my publishing site, uh, trapar.net, T r a p a r t dot net uh, there are you know all the books are there but they are also all available on on amazon and all of these biggies you know book depository and and amazon so if people want to find them you just you know go there and look for uh, the fenris wolf and they will find them brilliant well thanks so much for more of your time i i always thoroughly enjoy it so it's, it's yeah it's, likewise and and uh, let, let's talk again soon you know there's always things happening and there are always things to talk about brilliant thanks a lot And we are back. That was uh, one of my favorite episodes, I think. Um, it was uh, it was one of those things where we had a whole list. We should, you know, we'll be we'll be upfront with the listeners. We have a list normally of, of topics that we like to cover, and you know, we like to go into the specifics sometimes within a book. But actually, the the, the broad topic was so interesting that we didn't even get a chance to <laughs> really go into those topics. We, which is a good thing, because it, it gives us an excuse to. Uh, to come back to the subject and uh, dive a little bit deeper as well, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I, I sincerely hope we didn't I, I, we didn't sell short the the publication. I mean, it's it's full of uh, you know uh, far more themes than we could really cram into one episode. So um, yeah, so you, you can always always benefit from you know, reading the book yourself and um, you know and. Uh, or actually, if you get, if you have the privilege, also the the good fortune of of, of ever hearing Mr. Abrahamson talk in public, then that's another. So you might be promoted to do that as well. So that would be that's even better. Yeah, in fact, actually, if you want to witness the experience of seeing Mr. Abrahamson Mr. Abrahamson talk, uh, we did actually film one of his talks in Brighton. He alluded to it in the interview. In fact, uh, back in 2012, miles oh, ago. Seems like such a long time ago now. Um, but yeah, we uh, we we filmed that and put it up on the Sitting Now YouTube channel. Um, it's a shameless self promotion. Come on, guys, we're only forty something subscribers away from a thousand now. God. Anyway, anyway, back to the interview. <laughs> um, so yeah, what what you know? What were your uh, takeaways from the interview today? Well, I mean, like I said, I mean, it's what <laughs> it's not just what we said; it's what we we could have said, and uh, we didn't mention Kenneth Anger, who's like, a, you know, when you think about the occult, the occult themes and culture and the effects and on film and so on, you know, that that's something we could have really, really could have explored. But um, I, I mean that in a good way, in a, in a way, in a sort of. I come away not entirely satisfied, but that's actually a good thing. That's yeah. a good, good thing in this case. We got it's, swept away in a different direction, which, but in a good way. Yeah, yeah so, exactly. So. And, then, and uh, I think that's when the, when our work works, uh, if, the, if that happens. 
Yeah, exactly. Anyway, we shall be back next week. Um, and we will be because we've already booked the guest, as long as the guest turns up. Um, <laughs> as, but yes, we will be back. You can link up with us on social media at Sitting Now um, everywhere, um, including YouTube, where we only need 40 more of you. Come on. We've got thousands of listeners. 40 of you can subscribe to us on, on uh, YouTube. I'm, I'm begging here, Mark. I'm begging. Okay. <laughs> he's, on his, he's on his knees. Yeah, literally. He's know. on his knees in the dust. <laughs> he's in the dust on it, his knees. It doesn't cost you anything. Just hit the subscribe button. Anyway, but it's, um, it's just it's it's become a tokenistic thing to me now. There's no real reason. I just want a thousand subscribers. It's just it's my OCD is driving me insane. Um, but maybe you know it's my fault for not putting these bloody videos I've been working on out yet. But they will be coming soon. Um, anyway, next week we are returning hopefully with Martin Cannon, the author of The Child Stealers, um, and we're going to be doing a book about phantom social workers, which. Uh, might sound a bit weird, but actually the story behind it is actually really fascinating. So, yes, join us next week and we shall see you then. Bye-bye.